Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, you'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin or on the church website. As you turn there, I'll remind you that this is our fifth week in a row studying Psalm 119, and then we're going to pause after this week, and starting next week, we're going to dive into uh, the epistle of James And then what we'll be doing is returning periodically, pressing forward in Psalm 119 with a plan of completing both um, books and Psalm about the same time. And so this is our last time in Psalm 119 for a few weeks. And so with that, I'd like to begin by reading um, the Dalit strophe, chunk Remember, this is a psalm um, where every eight verses is following an acrostic pattern of the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and that's what we look at here this morning. So I'd like to begin by reading, and then um, we'll have some prayer, and we'll dive in. Psalm 119, verses 25 to 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Oh, Lord, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Lord God, I know that many among us are discouraged and sorrowful. I pray that your word would heal and strengthen. But I pray also that it would convict and instruct that we might learn how to deal with our sorrow, our anguish, how to deal with our pain and suffering in a righteous and godly way, how we can turn to you and how you are faithful as the God of all comfort to comfort us. So now, open our eyes to see, reveal glories in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are not now experiencing sorrow, Anguish and depression, no doubt, at some point in your life, probably sooner than later, you will. We live in a fallen world, a world where pain and suffering is normal. The sinless Savior was known as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And certainly our world recognizes this. Um, Dealing with depression, sorrow is a multi-billion dollar industry. Our world recognizes these are important things for people. Between psychology and mood-altering medicines and self-help books, there's a vast array, a panoply of options of how to deal with our sorrow and depression. One of the things I take great comfort from in the Psalms is their realism, how real they are. You may get the false impression sometimes that Christianity is about being chipper and always optimistic, sort of shallow, superficial, easy to see through. Everything's wonderful. 
There certainly are times of mountaintop emotional experience. There certainly are times of abundant, overflowing joy. But you read the Psalms, and you realize God understands and expects his people will deal with grief, will deal with anguish. I I take comfort from that. I take comfort that these Psalms instruct us, they model for us, how does a godly, faithful person deal with their grief and anguish? We'll learn this morning. How ought we to respond? We have patterns, psalms, songs to sing, prayers to pray to God, dealing with our grief. So look at this psalm. The structure, this strophe, probably has more clear and evident structure than any other one we've seen so far. It neatly divides in half. You look at the opening phrase in verse 25, my soul clings to dust, paralleled with verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. This strophe, these eight verses, are made up of two laments, two parallel laments. He's not really expressing two different sufferings, but he's speaking of his suffering in two different ways. You'll also notice another word that appears repeatedly in this strophe, and that's the word way. You see in verse 26, when I told of my ways, verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 29, put false ways far from me. Verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And verse 32, I will run in the ways of your commandments. So paths, ways of living, conducting oneself are central to what's going on here as well. This is a grief-ridden soul, a crushed soul, greatly concerned about what way, what path he will take in his suffering. That, that, of course, is the challenge of sorrow and suffering. Depression, anguish is itself a trial as you deal with the emotional pain, the anguish, confusion. But there's an additional trial, which is what will we do about it? Some people drink their sorrows away or attempt to. Others distract their sorrows away. What path will we turn to, what way, in our anguish, in our grief? The testimony of this psalm is clear. Cleave to the Lord in your grief. And if this isn't where you're at right now, I'd suggest you take note. You probably will be sooner or later. You almost certainly know people who are currently in the whirlwind. So... Good news, God has words for people in grief. He has counsel for them. He has comfort for them. Let us be attentive, learn, and apply. So we're going to look at the two laments. They're parallel. Again, we'll dive into the first one, the opening line. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. This is a pretty apt picture. My soul clings to the dust. More so even when you realize the Old Testament context. Turn turn back to Genesis chapter 3. You'll remember in Genesis 3... God cursed the serpent, he cursed the woman, he cursed the man. And this picture of your soul clinging to dust is either coming out of the curse to the serpent. If you remember, the serpent was cursed in verse 15, no, in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So here's a picture of abasement, of humiliation, of dishonor. The serpent will be eating dust all of his life. And so that becomes then a Hebrew way of speaking of shame, of lowness, of abasement. It also, if you look at verse 19, is tied into the curse to the man as well. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the commentators disagree somewhat over which of these two is more in view. If you see the second, then the psalmist here is saying he's close to death. I'm almost returning to dust, in other sense. But given the, the flavor of this strophe, I tend to think it's more, and here's your blank, I am utterly abased or humiliated. I, I think the idea here is of utterly being brought low. In the pits, we might say. Literally, my soul is glued, cleaving to dust. It's a, it's a pretty strong picture. And this, and this expression as a way to express abasement, humiliation, is used in other places. I'll give you one example. Psalm 44, verses 24 to 26. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So... The psalmist confesses that his utter abasement, humiliation, he could not be lower. His, his soul is in the dust. And the pattern we see in both of these strophes is there's a confession of lament. And I'd encourage you, be honest with the Lord about your emotional life. You're not, you're not going to fool him. You're not going to flatter him. Be honest. Cry out. Be real. There's no fake stoicism here. But the pattern is, in, in each of these laments, there's a lament which immediately invites a request. Because of my suffering, please act. And the pattern in both is not identical, but the elements that we see are requests and then commitments. God, here is my suffering. Please act. Here's what I intend to do. There can be extra elements in the strophes, but those are the but similar in both of them. That's the, that's the idea. So in your suffering, in your sorrow, what do you most need? I think it's instructive what the psalmist asks for. In both sections, in both laments, the first two things he asks for are the same. It gives you an idea of the priority of need. And the first thing he asks for is give me life according to your word. Give me life According to your word. And we saw that before, even in our last week's strophe. Look at verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. And I give you references here of all the other places in Psalm 119 where the psalmist cries out, Give me life. Give me life. Strengthen me, revive me. And we mentioned last week that when this prayer comes out, at certain points it seems really clear. We're talking about literal life and death. Here, I think, it's best understood by the parallel request in verse 28. Strengthen me. 
And so the idea, I think, is of one brought utterly low, destitute, revive me. There's your blank. Revive me. I need more life. I need more energy. I need more joy. I need to be revived and strengthened. And so when we are down, when we are discouraged, when we are weak, when we are low, when we are abased, we need encouragement. We need strength. We need enlivening. And the question is where we'll turn to find it. And I'd encourage you um, to make it your first priority when you are in the pits, when your soul is cleaved to the dust, to turn to the Lord for that strength. When your faith is weak, ask for strength. Ask for God's help. That is what he needs first and foremost. I need strengthening. I need enlivening. I need reviving. I need it from God, first and foremost. Not from a pill, first and foremost. Not from my shrink, first and foremost. Not from a good movie, but from the living God. I need his source of strength, first and foremost. Now notice the way he phrases this request. Give me life according to your word. That's significant. He's not just asking for out of the blue. What he's saying is, as your word promises... You see, faith, according to Hebrews 11, believes that God is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And, and the way you want to reason with God, the way you want to pray to God, is in ways that promote his honor. What the psalmist is saying is, I know you're true. I know you're trustworthy. I know you've spoken good things to me. So now, because you've said these things, revive me, strengthen me, give me life as you've promised in your word. And you say, where is he promised in his word? All over the place. Turn to Isaiah 40. If I'm right in thinking that this is an exilic psalm, a psalm written in the exile, then certainly Isaiah 40 would be written by then. And if not Isaiah 40, numerous other passages. But this is a pretty well-known one, beautiful one. Where does God promise reviving? Isaiah 40, pick it up in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So some in Israel are complaining, God doesn't see what's going on. He must not be paying attention, because we're being mistreated, and he's not doing anything. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord... It's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. To which you might be tempted to say, that's good for him, but I do grow faint and weary. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and Young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So perhaps our psalmist has a passage like this in mind. God, you've promised that for those who wait on you, you will give them strength. You will help them to persevere. Or perhaps... He's considering other passages. Psalm 41. Not Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 41. If you turn the page to Isaiah 41. Yeah. 
Verse 8, 9, and 10. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from his former corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And for us New Covenant believers, we know of him who said, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God delights in answering his children's requests. And he delights even more when they come to him with requests according to his word. You know, my children will come to me, and Sophie just recently came to me. Dad, you said yesterday that we could go sledding today. Can we go sledding? She's coming to me as someone she trusts to be faithful and to keep his word. And we come to God that way, according to his word, knowing what he said. Lord, these are the things you've said. Please do it for me. It honors God. That's the model we have. The first thing to do, you need strength, you need encouragement, you need reviving, and you need it from God, first and foremost. First request, revive me as your word promises. Or Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So that, of course, then presupposes you know what God's word says. So another thing you can do when you're discouraged, what does God say about his encouragement, about his help, about his strengthening, about his upholding? Read those passages. Pray those passages. Call on God to keep his word according to those passages. That's, that's the first model we have. He pours out his lament, lament then he makes his first request. Now we look at verse 27. No, verse 26, sorry. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. What's going on here? I believe he's encouraging himself by remembering God's past faithfulness. This is another important ingredient when you're discouraged, when you're in anguish. Can you look back on times in your life where God has been faithful to you? This is where Christian biographies can be so helpful. I can hear about God's faithfulness in the life of George Mueller. I can read about God's faithfulness in the life of Wycliffe and others. Or I can read my Bible and see God's faithfulness to Joseph, God's faithfulness to Abraham, God's faithfulness to virtually, well, not virtually, to everyone. God is faithful. Or I can think of my own life. Here, he remembers there's a time in the past when I told of God's ways. When I told of your ways, you answered me. I was faithful to act upon what I had. I opened my mouth. And God, you were faithful to keep answering me. And so he reminds himself both of his past activity, even as he may feel so discouraged that he couldn't imagine opening his mouth now and speaking. He remembers there was a time where he had that energy. And you know what? God was faithful then. One of the most practical things you can do for someone who's depressed or discouraged is get them to tell you about God's path faithfulness. Don't, don't tell them that's what you're doing. Just, hey, could you tell me how you became a Christian? Could you tell me that story of how you got converted again? what's going to happen? They're going to start remembering God's faithfulness. And hope is going to spring up within them as they remember, oh yeah, 
That's who my God is. That's what he's like. That's what he's done. Oh, yeah. That's why baptism services are so encouraging as people give their testimonies. What do we all do? We remember and we hear of God's faithfulness, and it encourages us. So remembrance. When I told of your ways, you answered me. So he's been declaring God's word. We saw it in past weeks that God teaches and reveals his word, but he intends for us to pass it on, for us to be conduits of grace, not simply chalices of grace, but that we would pass it on. We'd be conduits. Well, he's been faithful to do that, and God's been faithful in response. This also highlights the reality that this is a prayer of a believer. This is not how you become a Christian, but this is the emotional life of a believer. He's had past experiences with God. And so let me just pause, even though it's not what this psalm is dealing with. And perhaps you're here in grief and sorrow and depression, and you don't know the living God. There is a God who sent his son for you, to die for you, to atone for your sin on the cross. He can give you rest. He can give you comfort. He can give you what you most need, the forgiveness of your sins. This is a picture of a child of God walking out their faith in anguish and sorrow, which is in seasons of our life where we periodically live. So remembrance, when I told of your ways, you answered me. Then we get to the second request. So again, take note. What do you need when you're in anguish, when you're in sorrow? You need strengthening, to be sure. When you can barely get the energy to open your Bible, when you barely have the energy to pray to God, you need, you need strength. What's the second thing he prays for? Teach me your statutes. That may not be the most intuitive thing for us. I'm really discouraged. I'm in great grief and anguish over some loss in my life, some disappointment, or perhaps it's physical suffering, or maybe it's just grief for the way the world's going. There's all sorts of reasons you could be in lament. First, I need strength from God. Second, I need to know his word better. Teach me your statutes. That's the prayer. That's what we have modeled You may not jump to us. You may think, I know plenty of God's word. What I need right now is comfort. God's word is meant to comfort God's people. It sings and stings. But this request in verse 26 is going to set up the the commitment in verse 27. So the request, second request here, teach me your statutes. And then said another way, make me understand the way of your precepts. Which I think is two ways of saying about the same thing. The teaching being the instruction. The understanding, the, the application, the, the able to interpret it and apply it. I need to know what your word says. I need to understand how it's going to bear out in my life. That's the request. She saw first get thrown out last week and... Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Well, why does he need to know God's word? Well, look at the commitment next, the commitment. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. Well, there's some practical help for depression and sorrow. God, will you teach me? Will you teach me your statutes? Will you make me understand the ways of your precepts? And I will meditate on your wondrous works. And last week we talked about the importance of seeing glory, right? You remember that? We we need to find encouragement in God's word. And we can't do that unaided. 
And so in verse 18, the psalmist cries, Open my eyes, and I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Here is the same logic. God, I need you to teach me. I need you to make me understand so that I have something to meditate on, so I have something to bring my mind to, so I have glory and truth and beauty and wonder to think about and not just my situation. See this other ingredient? And so the idea here is, first, in my depression, I desperately need to see God's glory. In my depression, I need to see the beauty of God. I need to see the beauty of my Savior. I need to see his faithfulness. I need to see his goodness. I need to see his dependability. I need to see what he's done for others. I need to see what he's promised to do for me. Even as my soul is glued to the dust, show me wondrous things to think about, to get my mind off of. So often in our depression, we sort of chase our own tail, getting caught up in ourselves, just thinking about ourselves, what it is we want that we don't have what it is that we have that we don't want. What it is that we think would make us happy. What we think if only was the case, we would be joyful. Get your mind off those things for a while and think about the God who works wonders and has promised to work wonders for you. That's the practical reason he wants instruction here. Teach me, make me understand, and I will meditate on your wondrous works, which is the second point here the commitment that I will act upon the grace God gives. If you're asking for God's grace, you need to be ready to act on it. That's what's modeled here. I don't have the strength right now. I don't think I have the strength to meditate long on God's wondrous works. God, give me strength. Teach me. And then I will, I promise, I will meditate on the wondrous works. Be ready to act upon God's grace. If you're asking for help, be ready to act in response Because you remember, we saw this last week, God can hide his word as well as reveal it. Jesus in Luke 8, take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So in our first lament, in a confession of utter abasement, utter humiliation, utter lowness, what do I need? I need strength and life from God in keeping with his promises I remember his past faithfulness. He asks, we ask, Lord, show me, teach me more things in your word so I can meditate on your wondrous deeds and be prepared to act in response to God's grace. That's the first lament. The second lament, I think, is still dealing with roughly the same topic. The requests are very similar, but the difference of phrasing helps highlight some other important truths. So let's look at this. Next, my soul melts away for sorrow. Man, what vivid speech this is. Literally, I am dissolving in anguish. Like like an ice cube that's melting away. My soul is growing thin. It's dripping out. I'm dissolving in anguish. Possibly due to the external... um, external conflict from the princes in the previous strophe from outside enemies. We don't know exactly. Given that it flows on the heels that likely, this is from the mocking, the plotting, and the slander of his enemies. But whatever the cause, he feels like he's dissolving away. 
which then leads to the first request, which is very similar to the first request from the last lament. Strengthen me according to your word. Which again, it reminds us the importance of knowing God's word. Do you know, could you find passages where God promises to give strength? I did a study with a bunch of men this summer, and our goal was to find a couple passages for all the major topics of the life and the heart of the believer. You don't need to know every passage where God promises to give you strength and life and help. Do you have a couple? I encourage you to do that. Share them with other people. Like, Where do you go to? What promises of God give you encouragement? You, this is the model God gives. We come to him and we reason and we request according to his word. This is what you've said and you're faithful, so please do it. Strengthen me according to your word. Strengthen me according to your word. My soul melts away from sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Then we get another request. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. The second request is double-sided, right? Put false ways far from me. This is now the uh, third time that ways are brought up. And it helps to highlight his concern. He, he's brought low. He's in anguish. He's been faithful, but he wants to continue to be faithful. And yet, we know that when we're low, it can be tempting to take other ways, to follow other counsel. You just need to read Psalm 73. The psalmist is looking at the prosperity of the wicked, and it's like, you know, maybe, maybe I should do some of that. Maybe, maybe I should, maybe that path seems an easy path. They, they have an easy life. They're, they're fat and sleek and praised by men, and they, they, they get applauded for what they do, and they have no pangs in their life. Maybe, maybe, maybe this following the Lord's been, at least maybe as serious as I've been taking it, I should chill out a little bit. And so the prayer is, take false ways far from me. He's weak. He knows he'll be tempted. I don't, I don't want to see them. The prayer, was he praying? Guard me. This is similar to our Lord's prayer. Lead me not into temptation. If you're in depression, anguish, or you know someone who is, the temptation in that is to find comfort, to find strength, to find instruction somewhere else. That's, the, that's to be the temptation. Who will save you? Who will deliver you? Who will comfort you? who will give you life and strength. And there's many, many options out there on the table to turn from. Some in their anguish turn simply to distraction and binge-watching, you know, vacuous shows. Others turn to substances. Others turn to food. Others turn to Oprah. Others, and the list goes on and on and on. They're all in any number of false ways. Lord, keep them from me and graciously teach me your law. You get the idea, by the way, that these false ways are in direct conflict with God's law. The, the phrasing in the Hebrew here is remarkable, it's beautiful. Literally, grace me. That's your blank, grace me. Now, the ESV puts it, uh, graciously teach me. But grace me by teaching me. Remember, grace is unmerited, undeserved. This is not a bargain. This, this psalm, even as a psalmist is making commitments, it's not a tit-for-tat. You do this and I'll do this. Deal? It's grace. 
He's just saying, Lord, please give me what I don't deserve. I, I intend to act on it. I intend to be faithful with it, but he's not bargaining. It's grace. It's undeserved. Graciously teach me your law. And again, notice the first and second requests are the same. I need strength. I need more insight into your word. These are the things we most desperately need in our sorrow and depression, in our anguish. It's probably not what the world will tell you you need. But this twofold pattern drives the point home. We're going to get to a third request here in a second, but I want you to notice in both of these laments, number one and number two are the same. So guard me from error, lead me in truth. Graciously teach me your law. And now we get another commitment. Okay, look at it. I have chosen, verse 30. I set, verse 31. I cling, verse 32. I will run. So um, let's look at that commitments now. Now these three commitments that I've written out in your uh, notes here. I have the entire text of the psalm here, just trying to show you how I see the outline. Are, I think, saying similar things. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testaments. They highlight different realities, but I think they're roughly saying the same thing, which is this. With all the ways out there, with all the differing promises for a solution, I choose God's way. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And by which I think he means the way of faithfulness, not his way, God's word. I have chosen God's ways. That's what I've chosen to be my counselor. I'm choosing them to tell me what to do, which is another way of saying, I set your rules before me, which is another way of saying, I cling to your testimonies. But each of these emphasizes something a little different. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. What we're seeing here is complete trust in God's word. I'm crushed. I'm dissolving away. My soul is glued to the dust. And I want you to keep false ways from me. I recognize they can be a temptation, but I am choosing what God says. God's remedy, God's solution for my sorrow, God's treatment for my ailment. That's what I'm choosing. And if you're going to choose it, then you need to put it in front of you. I've set your rules before me, right? And the idea is what's in front of your face. Because so often this world will distract us. So the picture of setting your rules in front of me is they've got my full and undivided attention. That's your blank here, undivided attention. If you're going to choose the way of faithfulness, maybe you need to clear the table of some of the distractions, some of the blinking lights, and set God's word before you with undivided attention. A similar phrase is used in Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So if you're going to say, I, I, I choose, I want to respond to this the way God's word would have me respond. Okay, great. Then get it in front of you and the things that distract, get them out of the way. And then the third, here's your blank, I cling to your testimonies. Now here's another parallelism that shows up. Because remember verse 25, what's clinging there? My soul is clinging to the dirt, to the dust. But even as, he says, my soul clings to the dust, I am clinging to your testimonies. I'm clinging to something else as well. And that word for cling can mean to glue or to cleave. 
And it also may be drawing upon an imagery from the first chapters of Genesis. You remember in Genesis 2.24, after God brings Adam his wife Eve, Moses, I believe, summarizes what we've seen and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, literally be glued or cleave to his wife. And so even as the psalmist's soul is glued to the dust, he is cleaving himself to God's testimonies. It's a beautiful picture. It forms an inclusio. The, the, the psalm, this strophe begins with cleaving and gluing and ends here with this. Don't add to your sorrows in your sorrow by clinging to something else. This is where it comes down to faith. We're going to cling. When we're desperate, we're going to cling to what we think will save us. When you're scared, when you're beaten down, what you truly believe will come out. You'll, you'll cling to something for help. Cling to God. Cleave to the Lord in your grief. Cleave to the Lord in your grief. Commit that whatever happens, I'm, I'm holding fast to his word. I'm holding fast to him. I'm choosing his ways. I'm setting before me his statutes. And now, and only now, does the third request come forward which finally actually deals with the circumstances. And what I've tried to point out is this. He's got external circumstances that are causing him grief. In the last strophe, we saw some of them, right? Look at uh, verse 19. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed one who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me. So he's he's got external enemies. Now for the first time, he makes a request that deals with some of that. By implication. Do not let me be put to shame. It's remarkable. It, It is perfectly fine and good and right to pray about your external circumstances. Take away the shame. Take away the reproach. Silence the mouths of the scoffers and the mockers. But it's not the first thing you need. It's not even the second thing you need. Here's the third thing you need. So it is good and right. Pray that God take away the cause of the suffering. Pray that God deliver you. Remove the burden. Here it's the reproach the shame, the scorn of those who are plotting against him, those who are talking about him. But it's not the first thing he needs. We've seen that. The prayer here is, again, for vindication. You're blank. Vindication. Do not let me be put to shame. I don't want to experience the shame and the contempt of those around me. Just make sure this doesn't get too high on your list. It needs to be second, third, fourth, way down. First and foremost, I need strength from God. Secondly, I need a better understanding of his word. Okay, now, Lord, will you please take away the shame. Do not let me be put to shame. Which brings us into our final commitment. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I'll run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Now, what is this? Here we even see faiths already receiving what he's asking for. He's, he's brought low. He's dissolving away. And even here, he is picturing himself running. 
What a contrast between the melting, glued-to-the-ground soul. Now he's running, not walking. He's running, and he says, I will. There's a confidence here. I know God will respond. I will run in the way of your commandments, which is another way of saying obey, obedience, joyful, zealous, excited, exuberant, energetic obedience. I will run in the way of your commandments. That's the path I'll be running down. I won't be plodding. I won't be crawling. I'll be running in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What's that mean? Well, it's another sort of Hebrew idiom. And the idea here, I'll quote Alec Matir, the broadening of the heart means setting the heart free from restriction, confining parameters, and debilitating sorrow. It's used in other places um, to talk. A narrow place is a tight place, an enclosed place. You've got very little movement. Let me give you some examples. Psalm, Psalm 18, um, verses 18 and 19. They confronted me in the day of calamity. The Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. So he was, he was hemmed in on all sides. He had very little movement. He was restricted in a narrow place. He had these enemies. And then God brings him out to a broad place. That's the idea. Freedom of movement. Lack of constraint. Or uh, Psalm 31.8. You have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. So I, th- I think the idea is this. His heart is constricted with grief and sorrow. It's about all he's feeling. It's about all he's experiencing. He's in a very narrow place. His, his emotional settings have one flavor. Grief, anguish, sorrow. He's not moving in and out of those things. He's in a tight, narrow place in his heart. And he's praying, God, broaden my heart. Set me free from the restricting, confining sorrow. And I know that when God does that, I will gladly and joyfully run in the way of his commandments. That's, that's what's going on. Lord, can, can you at least give me more than one experience of suffering? Can you, can you at least broaden my heart out so it's not just sorrow and anguish all the time? But notice the trust here. God will do this. He's no longer even asking God to do this. He's confident God will do this. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. That's faith at work. You come to God, you ask for the thing, and you're asking according to his word, and so you know God's faithful. You know he keeps his word. Now, he's not necessarily certain when God's going to do this, when you enlarge my heart. It'll be two seconds after he prays, or two weeks, or two days. But but this is a pattern we have for dealing with sorrow. God has not left us ignorant of what to do. I know at the rise of, of modern psychology, there's been an assumption more and more with the church that if you have serious emotional problems, you need a professional. The Bible may be good for little problems. Read this. This is not a little problem. I believe this person in this strophe would be diagnosed as clinically depressed. I think that'd be fair. God's word has help and patterns and remedies for the most discouraged of souls. Taste and see the Lord is good. Believe the help he offers is more sure, more certain than anything else the word offers. And I'm not dissing 
all the other potential remedies. There can be some help and some good things. Do this first, is all I'm saying. Do this first. Taste and see whether God will be faithful. You will not test him and find him unfaithful. What's the old saying? It's not that God has been tried and found unfaithful. He's been found hard and left untried. So our confidence is that God will answer our prayers, that God will keep his word. And we're going to sing our closing song now, which celebrates that glorious reality. It's not my faith holding on to him that holds me fast. It's him holding on to me. Please stand. Lower the screen. And we will sing. He will hold me fast. <laughs>